um, they can cite the chapter and verse of things better than, um, than your average Catholic uh, understatement. Um, all right. Um, so I'm just going to start with the first paragraph here of the catechism. So this is a difficult thing to do. Um, I am, so I'm a teacher, and I am, um, students write a thesis for me. And one of the problems is that teachers always have is students don't put their thesis statement, right? They, um, you can't figure out what they're writing about. And so what a teacher likes to see is, can you give me your thesis statement? What your sums up what you're trying to do in one sentence? All right. The catechism tries to do that in the first paragraph, the thesis statement for the whole Catholic faith. All right, that's difficult to do. But let's just go through this. So it starts out, God infinitely, pro oh, one more thing. The numbers, so Catechism of the Catholic Church 1, that doesn't mean page 1. That means paragraph 1. So it doesn't matter. So you all have the same edition. But if somebody were using a different edition of the catechism with different page numbers, it doesn't matter because the numbers are the paragraph numbers. All right? And so here I'm on number one. God infinitely perfect and blessed in himself. Right? So yeah, God is infinitely perfect in a plan of sheer goodness freely created man. Right, so God doesn't need us. Here, I'm right on this prologue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is, where I am is page nine in your books. Um, and it's the same that's up there. Um, so God doesn't need us because he's infinite goodness. And we'll see he's a tr trinity of per He's a communion of persons. That's a later class on the trinity. But God has... He's not a solitary. He's not alone. Um, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has um, infinite happiness in himself. So why does he make the world? Not because he needs me or you, sorry, but because he freely wants to give a share of that happiness to us. I thought that's the first sentence. So he in a plan of sheer goodness, in other words, not looking for something for himself. Now, we can't do that, right? When we do things, we can't help but, in part, look for something also for ourselves, even when we're seeking to help others, right? Because we're needy. God's not needy. And so if he makes us, it's just to give. But, of course, part of giving is giving to us so we can give back. And so he's gracious about receiving, even though he's not needy. Right? So he's freely created man. Why? To make him share in his own blessed life. That's really, this is, this, this is the most important question in the world that maybe we forget to ask. And that is, um, why am I here? Right? Of all the questions that you could possibly ask, what, is, what am I made for is the most important question. Right? And the catechism in the first sentence says, God made us, why did he make us? So that we could share in his happiness. Right? That's why we're here. 
So that's the end. And then everything else, it's like if you're making, I don't know, if you're making a car or something, the end of it determines all the parts, right? You want to make it so that it, um, and so this end, God's made us to share his happiness, right? That's going to determine everything else that he gives us, right? Including, for example, a moral law, our conscience, um, the sacraments, the church, the incarnation, that's God becoming man, right? All of that is going to be for the sake of this, to make us share in his life. Right? And it's a, it's a personal thing, right? In other words, he doesn't need our community because he has communion himself, but he wants to expand that communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that it includes each one of us, right? That's the purpose. For this reason, to make us share in his own blessed life. For this reason, at every time and in every place, God draws close to us. Right? We might think of religion as man seeking God. And that, that's also true, right? Because it's reasonable for human beings to ask the question, what am I for? And to think about... Um, at, Ah, okay, great. Yeah, so we might think of religion as man seeking God. But what the catechism is telling us is the more important thing is it's God seeking man. Yeah. And that's what the Catholic faith is essentially about. And so God made us for this and so he comes down to us and reveals himself. Right? So he calls man first to seek him and then to know him and then to love him. Right? So there's an order. We don't start out loving him because we don't know him. Right? I was an atheist. I didn't love him. But the first thing we call to do is to seek him. Right? And so that seeking him, we can come to know him. And part of that might be this, you know, so philosophy does that. Philosophy is human beings trying to know something about God from our reason, from the fact that we exist. And, and, but fortunately, he doesn't leave us to ourselves. And he reveals himself to us. Right? And we call this revelation. And that's, that's what we're here to study, right? The Catholic um, uh, revelation, revelation of God to man. All right, so I need to seek him first to come to know him in these two ways, by my reason and by, this is going to be by faith, believing his revelation. And coming to know him enables me to love him. There's a principle that philosophers use, you can't love what you don't know. And that's why there's this, a class like this, right? So that we can come to know him by reason and faith together so that we can love him. And that's the, with all our strength. Okay? And we live in an individualistic society. So it's hard for contemporary human beings to understand the church. But the fact is, 
we're profoundly social beings, and we're miserable when we're isolated. And so God calls together all men. Right? So he calls us to seek him, to know him, to love him, and he also calls us together. Right? And that's, so the Catholic church, Catholic means the whole, according to the whole, or universal. Right? So he calls us into a universal church that is a universal um, communion or society. And the fact is we're scattered, right? We're scattered by sin. Sin divides, right? It's just simply egotism divides because it puts me against you, right? And love unites and so does sharing a common faith, right? So God calls us scattered by and divided by sin into the unity of his family. So notice the, the catechism um, is speaking there of the church, but it doesn't say it calls us into the unity of his church. It could have said that, but it speaks of the church as a family, and that's the way we should think of it, the family of, of God, the family of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we're called into that family. Now, it might be hard sometimes to think of the church as my family, but that's, that would be the... Um, that's the way we ought to think about it. Our family in the most profound sense. Okay? Into the unity of his family, the church. To accomplish this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son as redeemer and savior. All right, long time elapsed, I don't know how much time, between the first human beings, whenever that was, the first um, rational, um, uh, rational animals um, and the incarnation. So hundreds of thousands of years. Um, so human beings existed for a long time before that event, but that event is, this, we could say, the center of history because that's the, the most important event of history is that God wasn't content having made us and calling us, right? But he came into our, um, into our history, our life, our um, world, our nature. I right? took on um, humanity um, and, um, and became our redeemer and savior. And he invites us, right? So this is, so in the life of the Trinity, we're gonna, I'm getting way ahead of myself. We're gonna do this like five weeks from now. Um, we'll see that, and, but you all, Father, we speak of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the divine plan is that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, the eternal Son, becomes a Son of Man. So he's the Son of God from all eternity, and he becomes the Son of Man, being born of a woman, Mary, um, so that we can be sons in the Son. Right, so that was what I was mentioning before about our conversion experience. Um, he invites us to become, in the Holy Spirit, his adopted children, and thus heirs of his blessed life. Right? So if you're born into, I don't know, the family of the kings of England or something, that makes you an heir to the kingdom. Well, we've got something better. Baptism makes us sons and daughters, not of the king of England, 
but of God, and therefore heirs of the kingdom of God. Heirs of heaven and of all the riches of, of divine wisdom and love. Right, so that the, that's the plan, the overarching plan of Christianity. And questions? Mm -hmm. So, can you explain again the first point? Because I think I got the rest. Okay. The first point, like to make him share in his own blessed one. Okay, so God, him, God existed eternally before making the world, right? Because the world has a beginning in time, but God is eternal. God simply is. And God in his own inner life ha isn't unhappy, right? But he's infinitely full and thus happy would fall too short. So we say blessed. It means the same thing, right? So God has an infinite happiness and he wants to share that, right? There's a, philosophers use a principle, goodness and seeks to communicate itself, right? It's like um, everywhere in nature where there's um, just even heat, you know, fire, uh, a blazing fire, a bonfire, shares its heat with all of those who gather around it. Um, and so God, who's infinite goodness, wants to share that goodness. Um, and he doesn't lose anything by sharing it with us, right? And so he's made us, for that reason, so that we can share in his happiness. And we call that heaven, right? Heaven is when we fully share in that happiness. But we're called to share it already now, right, in this life. But um, not completely, for all kinds of reasons. Does that? I mean, not, no. What I'm trying to understand, like, so how, we, how we get to that. How do we get to that? Yep. So that... <laughs> We get to that, above all, because um, the, the Son of God, the eternal Son, in the middle of human history, has taken our nature and our condition so as to give us a share of His. It's like, um, how should we put this? Um, God is infinitely blessed, right? We're somewhat miserable. I mean, not, I don't want to make too much of it, but you know, there's death and cancer and, and all kinds of other things. And, um, and so he wants to make an exchange. He wants to make us shares of his divine life and eternal life and full life. And we're, what's proper to us is we're mortal, we're needy, we're um, ignorant and, um, and hard-hearted. And so he makes this exchange. He takes on not the hard-heartedness, but he takes on the human condition completely. He takes on what is ours to give us a share of what is his, all right? And yes, it's full in heaven, but it's meant to start now. And he gives us that share, we call it grace. And I'm gonna, later on in this course, again, this is just giving you the, it's impossible to give you the overarching picture without saying things that need to be explained later. But grace is our receiving already now a share of God's life, and above all, a share of God's ability to love, which we don't have just by human nature. And we fall short, right? And so, does that help? Anybody else wanna? Great, thank you.
right, well, that was the hardest part. So yeah, so this is just simply, that was a summary of the whole plan, and therefore a summary of the whole catechism. All right, we're done. Um, yeah, you can all go now. Um, so the key point is this. He doesn't need us. right? He doesn't need creation. He creates us so that he can give us a share of what is his. And that comes to us, though, not all at once. right? It's part of human life. So God is eternal. That means he's got everything all at once and forever. But the law of human life is that we start out as you know, a zygote and a fetus and then an infant. And, and so the law of human life is progressive growth. And that's how it is in the spiritual life as well, that we grow into it um, progressively. And part of that is that he doesn't reveal everything all at once either to mankind, right? so there are all these stages of revelation, or to each individual, and we have to grow into it. Yeah, so we come to share it progressively, and the goal, the ultimate goal, is heaven. And um, one of the problems I think that we face today is that heaven doesn't, uh, many people, that doesn't sound very attractive because we don't know what that is. Um, but we'll, again, we're going to talk about that later on and um, why that ought to, um, if you were mass today, the psalm was speaking about the, um, the deer thirsting for the, the living water. And, and that's the human heart is thirsting. We may not fully realize how thirsting our heart is. Right? And um, heaven would be the total fulfillment of every natural desire in the human heart. Right? It can be easy for us to simply get cynical and think, ah, the human heart has desires that are, I don't know, um, traitorous because they can't be fulfilled. But no. God made us, he made the heart, he made it to be filled. Right? So he calls us to seek him and to know him. Above all, yes, through reason, but above all through faith, simply because reason can only get so far. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. And he calls us to know him, not isolated, right, but in a family together in the church. Because that too is a desire of the heart. Right? The heart desires communion, communion with God who made us, but also communion with other human beings. Right? And that desire um, is, both desires are limitless. Um, no matter how many friends we have, we can still desire more communion and better communion. And heaven will answer that also. Right? And then the means to accomplish it, we say is, Incarnation. Incarnation means um, the taking on of flesh. Carne is flesh in Latin. So incarnation means God becomes man, takes on flesh, to give us a share of his spirit and his divine life. So we could say that Christ is the protagonist of this drama. He's the central figure, but the spirit is no less important. The spirit is invisible. The spirit is what makes us like Christ, the Son. The Spirit, we could say, is this invisible sculptor. Right, I, like, I used to be a sculptor, so I like sculptor analogies. But, um, so the Spirit is the invisible sculptor whose task is to sculpt the, our heart. And it's the hardest, it's infinitely harder than sculpting marble. Because the marble, all right, maybe it breaks, but, it, um, but the human heart resists. 
right? Because that's our freedom. Okay, so the catechism has four parts. So this is just the, the plan of the catechism. Um, the first part, which we started with today, is the, um, the creed. So basically, the faith. What do Catholics believe? And we're going to do that mostly till Christmas. So I'm going to spend the most time on the first part of the catechism, just simply because that's the, the foundation. So in, in the Mass, we say the, the creed, and so we're going to explain all the different parts of the creed in the, in the first part. The second part of the catechism is our worship. So worship and sacraments. Um, and that's really important because this course, in part, prepares you for... So how many of you have not been baptized? Okay. Um, so this course will prepare for baptism, for those who haven't been baptized, and for those who, who have, for confirmation and First Communion. And if you've already received those, it'll just simply prepare you to receive them better. Okay? Um, but I'm going to switch that. I'm going to do that. And then the third part of the catechism is on the life of faith, basically the moral life, Ten Commandments. Um, um, yeah, the, uh, the life of faith. And I'm going to switch two and three, just so that we can do the part on the sacraments closer to when you'll actually receive them. All right, so we'll follow the catechism, but switching parts two and part three. And then the fourth part is magnificent. It's a part on prayer. And um, uh, that may be, I haven't exactly determined. We're going to put some of that um, before the end and then some at the end. Okay? So that's the plan. So basically what we believe, how we worship, um, how we, um, the Christian life, and Christian prayer. Okay. okay. So the first part just simply follows the creed. But today, before we get to the, so that will start next time. But um, yeah, so it starts with God, right? So that God exists, that he reveals himself. Faith is how we receive what God reveals. And I'll, I'll explain that in a later class. But maybe let's say something about it right now. So um, according to this, right? So reason is man seeking God, using looking at the world, using my own reason and other people's reason, philosophy. But if God speaks to us, how do I receive that? I have to believe him because first of all, I don't see him, nor do I see what he's talking about. For example, when he speaks, tells us that he's a trinity of persons, right? So we don't see either the God who's speaking or what he's speaking about. And for us to receive that revelation, what do we have to do? We have to believe that he's telling us the truth, right? And we call that faith. And you can see how important that's going to be. Because if I don't believe him when he speaks to me, um, I'm not going to receive any of it. Right? So everything we do here is going to be in faith. Now, you might have a question. Well, maybe I'm here not yet believing. And that's absolutely okay. Um, Faith grows, just like everything we said. Um, 
God speaks to us in a progressive way, and faith grows in us in a progressive way. And it's never static. At no point can we ever get to the point where I could say, oh, I'm perfect in faith. Uh, that's the sign that I'm about to fall on my face, probably. Uh, because rather we should, so there's a beautiful prayer in the Gospels where a, um, a man with an epileptic son comes to Jesus. And um, Jesus is up on the mountain being transfigured and the apostles try to heal this, this epileptic and they fail. And then Jesus comes down and so the, the husband, the father asks Jesus, Lord, if, if you can, um, can you do something? And so Jesus if you can, right? So you can see the person asking didn't have full faith. He was, he was doubting. Um, and so Jesus responds, um, believing, right? He who believes, all things will come. And so the man says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Right? That's a great prayer because that applies to every person. Um, yeah, so faith, and it's just simply... Believing in God is like believing other human beings, right? So if I were to ask, so we did our introductions, right? And you told me something about yourself, it would be very rude, no? If I were to say, oh, I don't believe you. That would be ridiculous. Um, because it would block us from having a relationship, right? If I don't receive what you tell me about yourself. Um, and so it's the same with God, right? If he speaks to us, we ought to, it would be rude and foolish to disbelieve him, um, right? But we are not going to immediately, human, we call that human faith. Human faith grows over time, right? The more I know somebody, right? I, so it would be much worse if I disbelieve my wife than anyone else, right? And so we grow in human faith over time. And the same thing is true in our relationship with God. Okay. Anyway, we'll talk more about that later. So the catechism starts with revelation, faith, by which we receive it, and then goes into the creed, God the Father, the Trinity, um, God the Son, the Incarnation, the Passion, His death, and Resurrection, and then um, the Holy Spirit, Grace, the Church, um, and, um, and the, what we call the last things, the Resurrection, um, death, judgment, heaven, and hell, and Resurrection. So that's the plan of the first part. Okay, so we're going to start today. Oh, one last thing, yeah, very important. Um, the Catechism points out in number 25 that the whole purpose of everything in this book is so that we grow in love. If knowing about the faith doesn't make me grow in, in love, then I'm not going about it rightly, and it's missing its purpose. So this is a beautiful quote. This is a quote from the, the earlier catechism of the Catholic Church from the 16th century. The whole concern of doctrine and its teaching must be directed to the love that never ends. Right? In other words, never ends because it continues in heaven. Whether something is proposed for belief, that's the first part, for action, um, belief or hope, right? say heaven, and for action, that would be the part on the Christian life, the commandments, right? So thou shalt not kill. That's proposed to me for action. And the love of the Lord must always be made accessible so that anyone can see that all the works of perfect Christian virtue spring from love 
and have no other objective than to aim at love. Right? In other words, everything we do here ought to have that final purpose. So we can love God and neighbor better. Okay. Yeah, there's this, yeah, first, and this is St. Paul's hymn to love from his first letter to the Corinthians, um, chapter 13. The church in Corinth, so St. Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians. It was a church that he had founded, and in this community, there were some problems. It's somewhat of an understatement. So he goes, the whole letter goes through different problems in this community. There's divisions, there's jealousies, there's rivalries, there are problems in worship, and so forth. But kind of the high point of the whole letter is chapter 13, um, where he speaks about love. If I speak in tongues of, of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. In other words, without love, we have ultimately nothing. If I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith to move mountains but lack love, I'm nothing. And so basically, St. Paul is saying that everything that we do here is for the sake of love. And he gives this great list of qualities of love. Anything so far? Okay. Ah, so I kind of said something about this. So what is faith? Faith is our response to God. So I think I already explained this. God revealing himself to us, in some way he's giving something of himself to us by revealing um, who he is. And by believing him, that enables us to give something back, it's like in human relations, right? Simply my believing you um, is, makes possible right, um, a relationship. So faith is man's response to God who reveals himself and gives himself to us. But at the same time, bringing a superabundant light as we search for the ultimate meaning of life. I know that's... It's natural to ask the ultimate question. Very often we don't, though, right? The ultimate questions are, why am I... Uh, I remember be, when I was about I know, 10 or something, being at camp and wondering, hmm, why am I me? And uh, that, um, we tend not to go there, right? But why do I exist? That's the most important question. But the problem, the reason why we don't go there is because we don't know how to answer it, right? And God made us, though, and so he knows how to answer it because he made us. And so faith gives us light. It might seem like faith is believing something in darkness, and that's also true, right? Because faith is believing something that I don't see myself, that somebody else sees, God sees. And so in that sense, it's dark because I don't see it, right? But it's also light, it's light because it lights up the meaning of life. It, maybe we won't see it yet as, as light. And that is something that ought to grow throughout our, our journey. Okay? And not just any light, but a super abundant light. Right? Light that shows um, what's most important in life. Doesn't, faith doesn't give us the answer, obviously, to questions that we... Um, about natural science and things like that, right, or medicine. Um, so the light of our reason shines on that, those questions. 
but faith um, gives superabundant light for the ultimate questions where my own reason falls short. Simply because um, it, to know what something is for, who should you ask? Right? The one who made it, right? If you see something made by an engineer, you, to know what it is, you'd have to ask the engineer, right? And um, we have to ask God the meaning of life. Okay. All right. So I mentioned before that everyone has a natural desire, in fact, to, um, for lots of things. And so there's a desire for God written on the heart that we may not realize, right? So as an atheist, I didn't realize that I had a desire for God. But there's a, um, a famous line of St. Augustine in his confessions that you might have probably heard. Um, he, um, he speaks about the human heart as being restless until it rests in God. And in his confessions, he shows how he was restless, and it's true of every human being. The reason why it's true is because of the nobility of being a human being. To be a human being is to have reason, and reason can grasp something like the good. A cat or a dog and a beast can't know that, the good, because they don't have universal ideas. That's proper to human beings. So an animal seeks by instinct particular goods, and rests in those particular goods, right? So uh, a pig um, is happy with his pig pen and his oats and his know, Mrs. Pig, whatever, and, um, and doesn't seek anything beyond the particular goods that his instincts lead him to. Human beings aren't like that. We do have instincts too, but we have universals, and we can think of the word the good, and therefore, this particular good, whatever it may be, isn't the whole good. And I'm going to be restless. It's written into our nature, and it's true of every human being. Right? And you see this when people try to find their happiness in something finite. Right? When people try to find their happiness, let's say, in wealth, what happens? They might think, you know, if I just become a millionaire, I'll be happy. Right? But what happens? To be a millionaire today is not so special, and so it's got to be a billionaire. But what if you then become a billionaire? What do billionaires do? They try to become multi-billionaires. And you can see that that quest is restless because no matter how much money you get, you always want more because however much you have, it's not the whole good. Right? And it's the same with power. People who have power, let's say, in the political sphere, they're never satisfied or almost never with however much power they get, right? But you always want more. And it's the same, you can see this with addictions. Right? Somebody who's addicted to something, it doesn't matter how much they get, they always want more. And all of this shows us something about the nature of the human heart. It's not possible for the human heart to be satisfied perfectly, even with really good things like, I mean, just think of the best things. A wonderful marriage, ch children, a job, a nice home. That doesn't perfectly satisfy the human heart. And that that's not because my wife is defective or my job is defective. It's because my heart is made for something bigger. Right? So that was kind of part of our conversion story was I had just naively thought as an atheist that when we got married, we could fulfill one another. And the fact is spouses can't do that because the human heart is bigger 
than anything that another human being can fill it with. And that's, that not, right, that's okay, because we're not God. The human heart, so that's what's meant here, that the human heart is meant for God. It's made in such a way that finite things, even finite love of really good human beings, can't fully satisfy it. And everyone has plenty of experience of this, everyone in their own way. So this is why um, in proposing the faith, right, the church is proposing something that everyone in some way has an experience of from the point of view of the natural desire. And it's above all, we want a goodness that is not limited. Well, how many of those are out there? The fact is there's only one, right? And that is God, right? He's the only one who is infinite goodness who can fill the human heart. And what's so beautiful is it's not as if, you know, my heart exactly matches onto God. No, he's infinitely bigger than my heart. And so he super abundantly fills the human heart. And already during this life, we can come to experience that over time, all right? And so the dignity, so every human being has an immeasurable dignity, right? And there are all kinds of reasons for that. It's because we're free. It's because we're rational, because we have the ability to love. But the ultimate reason for our dignity is that what we just said. We are, have such a dignity that we can't fully rest in creatures, and we're made for God. Right? And so that's a dignity that no other um, material being has. Right? A dolphin doesn't have that dignity and can't. Um, no offense to dolphins. Um, so the dignity of man rests on the fact that we're called to communion with God. Right? And that's true of everyone. It's equally true of the atheist as of the believer. And it's all of us, the atheist and the believer, are falling short in that relationship. Right? We're always called to more. But that dignity is um, true of every human being. Right? Because the invitation is for every human being, right? And that invitation is written into the heart when we're made, right? When we're conceived. So there's an invitation to converse with God addressed to man as soon as we come into being, right? And yeah, obviously we have to grow up a little bit to to be able to hear that, but children surprise us though. And in some ways for children it comes easier. If we exist, it's because God has created us through love, and through love continues to hold us in. So we don't think about this, right? We tend to think that we're self-sufficient, autonomous. But we'll come to, um, the fact is that our being isn't from ourselves, right? We didn't make ourselves, and if we're not sustained in being by God, we would all actually, if God were to stop sustaining us right now, we would go into nothing, right? We were receiving our being at every moment. And we don't live in the truth unless we acknowledge that. Okay. So man is a religious being because of this. Right? Obviously, man is also a resisting being. In other words, we resist that relationship for all kinds of reasons. The principal reason is simply because there's a natural instinct also to, hold, to, to define myself, to be autonomous. Right? So just as can happen in other human relations, there can be something in us that resists right, the relationship 
Um, but nevertheless, if we look at human beings from the beginning of human history, we find man is a religious being. Simply, it's a fact of history and of sociology, right? That wherever we find human bones, we'll find um, some um, record of religious activity. I was on an um, archaeological dig in Jericho. So I lived, um, my wife and I lived in, and son lived in Jerusalem for a year, and I was studying um, biblical archaeology and, and theology, and we would take these field trips. So one time we took a trip to Jericho, which is among the oldest cities on earth, and they, um, it's kind of this um, mound, because when a city gets destroyed, and then it gets rebuilt on top of the ruins, and it kind of grows up like that. And so in archaeological dig, you dig down, um, and the further down you go, the older the... Um, so they got to this point that carbon dating dated at 7,000 BC, and it just so happened right there at that lowest part of the city of Jericho, they found an altar. All right, that's partly a coincidence, but, but to me it was interesting, right? Because it shows that the deeper you go in human history, you find evidence of religion. And it, it, it makes sense because um, the human being asks these questions, has this desire, and um, seeks God. And in every time, God reveals something, not the fullness. So revelation has been progressive. But man, nevertheless, is always a religious being. All right, questions on that? Right, that's not to say that everyone thinks about it equally, right? I lived as an atheist for 29 years. But um, even as an atheist, I was interested in religious things, right? Even though thinking I didn't need it. So I remember my, my grandpa was Jewish, and he had fled from, the, um, from Russia about the turn of the, about 1900. And um, when he came to this um, country, he always gave money to the synagogue, but they didn't go except on, um, it would be like um, the high holidays, be like going to church on Easter and, and Christmas. Um, but he always gave money to the synagogue so it would be there for people who need it. Right? And so that, um, somehow that lodged in my memory because the fact is, right, we all need it. Um, and um, yeah, because we're all religious beings. Yeah, here's the phrase from St. Augustine. You are great, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your power and wisdom. And man, so small a part of your creation, wants to praise you. This man, though clothed with mortality, bearing the evidence of sin and the proof that with you withstand the proud. Despite everything, man, though but a small part of your creation, wants to praise you. For you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Okay, we're going to see later on, we're created, so Genesis tells us, the beginning of the first chapter of Genesis, that we are made in God's image. And we'll look at that later on, what that means exactly. But by being made in his image, that's partly speaking about what we've been saying, right? That we're made in his image with a natural desire to seek him and come to know him and have relationship with him. Now, there are ways to know him. We've got 10 minutes here. Um, by, so I'm going to just look in the remaining 10 minutes. By what can reason do um, of itself to know God? Right? And so the catechism here speaks of proofs of the existence of God. But don't be misled by that term, proofs. It's not like in geometry, where you can prove you know, different things about triangles. Um, 
proof here means um, converging, convincing arguments. But it's a harder subject than geometry. Right? It's about, um, so we, converging, convincing arguments which allow us to attain certainty about the truth. So it's possible, the catechism say it's possible by reason to come to certainty about God's existence and certain basic um, aspects of God, that he's one, that he's good, that he's love, and that he's truth. It's possible, but in fact, most human beings don't get that certainty from reason alone. Not that we can't, but for the most part, we don't have time. Right? We don't have the leisure to study philosophy. So um, I did have that leisure um, after our conversion to study philosophy. And yes, it's possible through philosophy to come to a certainty, not, a, maybe, um, not as great a certainty as we might like, um, about God's existence from reason. Right? And it, um, so let me say something about that. We speak of ways. So the most famous example of this is Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, great... He's my favorite uh, theologian philosopher. And um, he lived, um, he was a Christian philosopher, but nevertheless was a student of Aristotle, Augustine, etc. And um, he gave five ways by which we can come to know God's existence. Right? So this is uh, the famous five ways. And they, they're not something that you can read in five minutes and come to a certainty about God's existence. Right? You have to be prepared understanding something about philosophy and so forth, but I'm going to try my luck out with it um, all the same. And so the, the ways that we can come to know God, um, we can have two different starting points, the world or the human person. So starting from the world, um, it's possible to know that there's an... Um, if we, let's take the cathedral next door. I'm always pointing the wrong direction. Is it that way? That way. Okay, so if we look at that cathedral next door, is it reasonable to think that that just came about by chance? That let's just imagine some kind of gigantic hurricane that you know, just went through St. Louis, and what happened through that hurricane was the cathedral, right? Nobody would think that, right? And the reason why you wouldn't think that is because there's order. There's incredible order in a cathedral, and you can be certain there was an architect and a blueprint and a plan and um, reasons for making it the way that it's made. If that's true, of the, and the same thing would be true of a car, right? Nobody would think that a car came about by chance. How could we possibly think that the human body came about by chance? We're infinite, immeasurably more um, sophisticated in our order than a, a car, right? And we all know that order doesn't just happen by itself, right? If I stop cleaning my room or my house, and what happens, or my lawn, Right? It becomes a chaos. And, and physicists have a name for that, the law of entropy. Right? That disorder naturally increases. And the only way to get order is to have an order who puts that order in. All right? So the, the first way to know that there's a God is simply looking out at the world. Is there order in the world? Yes. And what's so beautiful is that modern science shows this much more than it now than in any previous age. I know there's what science shows. So my dad was an atheist physicist. And he, um, he had the, the firm conviction that there's an order in the universe. right? Because who would do physics if you thought it was all a chaos? 
And he thought that, as an atheist physicist, that um, in fact, given different hypotheses, right, different equations to explain you know, what's happening, the simplest and most elegant hypothesis, um, the theoretical physicist sure is the right one, long before you can empirically test it. And that was true of Einstein's theory of relativity. Right? It was a long time between when he formulated because of its elegance and when it was able to be tested. Um, and so what is, that's precisely, if there's an order in the universe, that points to an order-er. Right? Anyway, this can be taken, people um, have taken this kind of argument, um, very often it's called intelligent design. Right? It's, it's the idea, is looking at the cosmos, not only is there an order, but there's an order that um, seems to be in place precisely so that we can be sitting here. All right, I don't want to make too much of this, but take the law of gravity. So in science, there are these different physical laws, like the law of gravity, that have a constant in it. Um, and that constant could have been anything. And so just imagine for a second if the law of gravity was a little stronger than it is. There, in the universe, there would not be any life or any possibility of it because there wouldn't be solar systems and galaxies and planets. And let's suppose that the law of gravity was a little less than what it is. There would be just total dispersion. And again, we wouldn't be sitting here in this room. All right, how is it that that law just happened to come out so perfectly calculated so that we can be sitting here? And, but that's, there's, there are tons of these, there are lots of these laws and constants, right? And it seems that they all convert. Anyway, that's one kind of argument that people use. Um, and this is also biblical. Um, maybe the best one is the Book of Wisdom, chapter 13. Yeah. People who are ignorant of God were foolish, right? That's what the Bible says about atheists. Foolish because they were unable from the good things that are seen to come to know him who exists, nor did they recognize the craftsman while paying heed to his works. For from the greatness and beauty of created things comes a corresponding perception of their creator. Right? So the idea is from the beauty right, for biology, or just it might even be something like you know, mountain climbing, seeing the beauty of nature, right, to have some sense that this isn't just some freak accident, but there's an order who's also an artist, right, the divine artist. If that's true from the cosmos, it's more true from the human person. So here's a better starting point. Let's start with God's masterpiece in the physical world, and that's each one of us. And so by, from looking at ourselves, we can also see there's a law not only written into nature, right, natural law, but there's a law written into our hearts and into our consciences. Right? And so everyone knows in conscience certain things that we didn't, eh. and the prime example is the golden rule. Right? So everyone knows, um, and we don't need to be taught, although yes, parents teach their children, that um, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. That's written into my heart and my conscience. Right? And that's an order, and there are other things like that, right? to seek the common good over the private good, that um, the end doesn't justify the means. Um, that to give each person their due. So everyone knows certain fundamental truths um, in our conscience, and we know that we'll be judged on how we act in accordance with that, right? If I, in my life, 
always act against the golden rule, right? And we see people out there who seem to be doing that, right? What a, there's a conviction that, that that's unjust in itself, objectively unjust, and it's not right, and there ought to be a consequence, right? A judgment. So what I'm saying is that there's an order that we find also in our own conscience and our own heart. And we can use the same reasoning. Where there's a law, what should there be? A law giver. Right? So if there's a law that judges me, not because I like that law, but in some sense, even when I'm trying to escape from it, I can't help but think that that law governs my heart, the golden rule, and everybody else's heart. That points to a lawgiver and who's my maker, who's made the human heart with a certain share of his truth. So that's a way to get to it from the human heart. And so that's the way from conscience. And we could also go the way that we did earlier of the natural desire. There's a natural desire for something unlimited. That unlimited being for God must exist and must be able to give himself to us. Otherwise, we would be made um, absurd. Now, somebody might say that, right? There are philosophers out there. Philosophers aren't always the most wise. Um, so there are philosophers who are atheists as existentialists, who basically think this world is absurd, that we have this desire for God, and he doesn't exist, and there's no meaning to life. But an absurd answer can be ruled out of court, right? Because um, that's how we show something is wrong, right? When we show that it leads to absurdity. So we can also get to God from the desires of our heart. All right, I've run out of time. These proofs aren't ultimately why I believe. I think that they're right, right? I think that all of them work. But they collaborate, they work together with what we're going to start next time, and that is God's revelation. So reason and faith work together, right? Reason above all serves to lead us to seek out. So if, if those things are true that we've said, right, that we're made for someone bigger than ourselves, that there's a law written on our conscience that will judge us, but I know my conscience is weak and faint, um, it's natural to hope, and ex at least to hope, that that God who I'm yearning for will reveal himself to us. Right? That's what we're going to look at next time. Questions on anything? Send with a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We give you thanks, Almighty God, for having made us out of nothing and made us to know you and having given yourself to us and revealing yourself to us and giving yourself to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so please ask questions if you haven't, and I'll stay for a little while if anybody has.